0: Welcome to the Kenosha City Church Podcast. Each one of us has a good work to do. We may not see it yet, but it's often right there in front of our eyes. During this series, we will learn how Nehemiah responded to his own calling and learn how we can change our own world just by leaning into the unique calling that God has put in front of each of us. Today's message starts us off in the right place in Nehemiah chapter one. Enjoy the message. Nehemiah had a big kingdom Call, and I want you to know, as we study this book, you're going to realize each and every one of you have a giant, big kingdom call on your life. In fact, just turn to the person next to you and say, you're called by God, all Right? Go ahead, do that, out loud with words, just say, you're called by God, all right? Now somebody like, oh, that's a little awkward. I know, but we need to be reminded that every single one of us, no matter your age, no matter your circumstance, you are called by the Lord God Almighty to do a big work nehemiah responded to his calling and we need to respond to the calling that god has for us and as a church as well now i've mentioned on a number of occasions uh, that when i was studying to be a pastor it's in grad school what they call seminary when i was studying to be a pastor one of those years uh i had free lodging in the biggest mansion in northbrook illinois i was a butler all right Yes, if you can believe that, I was a butler, and I had most. Even though I had my own living quarters, and we had a, I had a Vincent Van Gogh uh, out right outside my door, a real one. It was surreal. Okay, it was surreal. In fact, uh, when the owner was gone most of the winter, they had another mansion in California. They go and live in, so I'd have the whole castle. Yes, it was built like a castle. I'd have the whole castle to myself. But something dawned on me in this year that I was a butler. I realized that living in the biggest home in Northbrook, all right, uh, this home is rivaled only to Michael Jordan's home in in Highland Park, uh, I realized that unless I become a phony TV uh, prosperity gospel preacher, this was the biggest house I was gonna live in until heaven, all right? I realized it was all downhill from there. Well, the owner came back and and, uh, they said, hey, next year, if you're gonna be my butler, Uh, I need you to understand, I can't have you have another job. Well, that was gonna be impossible. Like, free lodging was cool, but I still needed to pay for my school, all right? So I'm like, okay, that's not gonna work. And they said, also, I can't have you leave for Christmas. I need you to watch this area and watch this whole house. And so I just can't have you go anywhere. And I'm like, okay, the biggest house has now become one giant prison for me. So I said, all right, I'm out. So what ended up happening is I moved from the biggest house in Northbrook and I moved to the... West side, right along the 294 in Northbrook in the worst place I've ever lived in my life. An apartment building that was full of cockroaches at one point across the, the building and, and the building across in the parking lot in the same complex, somebody was murdered. It was miserable, all right? And I remember sitting in my apartment one night, cockroaches all and, and just all the craziness that was there. I felt very lonely. I felt, I went from the top all the way to the bottom What am I doing? God, what are you doing? Have you ever had those moments? Where you're like, what am I doing? God, what are you doing? But in that moment, I realized that whether I'm in a really cush house or I'm in the slum, I was a servant of the Lord, a butler of the Lord in the mansion. And now I'm a servant of the Lord, a butler of the Lord in the slum. No matter where we're at this morning, what we're going to learn from the book of Nehemiah is that you are called no matter where you're at. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you have one giant calling over you. If you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, you can place your faith and trust in Jesus today and oh, the adventure begins. I want you to know this. It's not the professionals that God calls. Yes, he, he calls people that are professional, I guess. It's not people that have extraordinary natural giftings. Yes, God, can, God does and will use people with natural extraordinary giftings. But I want you to know that the kingdom of God consists of people working together, ordinary people working together, allowing the extraordinary of God to move in and through them. And that's our main point through this whole message today is that God's extraordinarily qualifies ordinary people. God extraordinarily qualifies ordinary people. Some of you are on the mountaintop this morning. You are loving life, right? There's some people here that you're just loving life this morning. Some of you, life couldn't be harder. Life couldn't be worse. You're like, please get me in that next season. And I would say for most of us, we're somewhere in between. We're somewhere in between. But no matter what, I want you to know, you have a calling over your life. Listen to this. This is from Jesus, uh, Matthew 9:36. This is what Jesus said. I'll put this on the screen. He said, When the, when he saw the crowds, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dejected like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers. Into his harvest. I want you to lean into what Jesus has to say here. God could just snap his finger and say, "You know what? Uh, There's a harvest. I'll take care of it. I'm God, right? That's that's what God could say, right?" But what Jesus is saying here is this: the harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. He's not saying, "Hey, the harvest is abundant." But the Lord isn't strong. No, no, no. What he's saying is the harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. So pray to the Lord of the harvest for the workers into his harvest. What the Lord is saying is this. Even though he's God and he can snap his fingers, he spoke creation just by his words, his strategy is actually you. You. He wants to move in and through you to get maximum glory. And that's what we're gonna see with Nehemiah. The book of Nehemiah, when it's preached, it's preached for a number of reasons. Uh, it can be preached. I, I, a lot of leadership books are written uh, by the, from the book of Nehemiah. And yes, you can learn and you will learn leadership principles here. Uh, other people, uh, Nehemiah is a, a motivational book. And yes, it's a motivational book. But what I want you to know is well, as we study the book of Nehemiah, it is first and foremost about God, about the people of God, and how the people of God move kingdom work amongst adversity. Nehemiah is a direct sequel to the book of Ezra, which recounts the nation of Israel's journey back to the homeland. In fact, what we will see here in the weeks to come is Israel is in really, really bad shape in this period. They have forgotten who they were. They've forgotten whose they were. Uh, They've forgotten their mission. And in fact, many died in their disobedience because they moved away from their calling. And as a result of Israel's sin, the people of God were exiled for 70 years but yet now they have an opportunity to get back to their homeland. And we will see Nehemiah make an eternal difference despite his hard circumstances. We will also see God do extraordinary things through ordinary people. We're going to see God do extraordinary things through you as you, to, you let the revelation of God move through your heart. Because God extraordinarily qualifies ordinary people. So let's look at Nehemiah chapter one. The words will be on the screen. If you're with us week in and week out, I encourage you to download our Kenosha City Church app where we have the Bible there. You can can look up Nehemiah there. If you have your physical Bibles, even better because then you'll get the push notifications. You can can take notes in your Bible. Yes, you can write in your Bible, write notes, right? Nehemiah, it's kind of in the middle of the Bible. We just opened up, but there is a table of contents. You can use that. We're We're not Bible snobs here, all right? Nehemiah chapter one, verse one. Let's get right to it. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, during the month of Shizlev in the 20th year when I was in the fortress city of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, arrived with men from Judah and I questioned them about Jerusalem and the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile. They said to me, The remnant in the province who survived the exile are in great trouble and disgrace. And Jerusalem's wall has been broken down, and its gates have been burned. Verse 1. The book is written by Nehemiah. We see this a firsthand account. Nehemiah was a very common name in this area. The name means the Lord has comforted. We notice that it was written. And Chislev, which is December during the 20th year, of the, the 20th year is referring to the 20th year of the reign of the Persian king Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes is an important factor for the people of God, and we will see this in the weeks to come. Uh, but we also see in verse 2, uh, Hanani, that is Nehemiah's brother, informed him of the dire conditions that people, uh, were, the people of God were experiencing uh, back in Jerusalem. They were living uh, in a state of spiritual poverty and brokenness. So as we go through Nehemiah, it's important uh, to know that Israel was in exile and they were coming back. But I want us to really understand this. So we're going to spend weeks to come in this book, I want us to really understand why was Israel in exile to begin with. And so... You, If you're a history buff, oh, you're going to want to get your notes out. You're going to want to get your pen. There's no way you're going to remember this, all right? So y'all better, better take notes because I'm going to give you a history of Israel in six minutes or less, all right? You ready for that? You ready to buckle up? I know somebody like, hey, you missed that topic. It's, it's a way big overview, all right? Very exhaustive here. I'll give you a three-hour sermon. No, I'm not going to do that, all right? <laughs> Israel's history, we're going to go back to Genesis, the first book of the Bible. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. I'll put the words on the screen for you. The Lord said to Abram, go from your land, your relatives and your father's house to the land that I show you and I'll make you into a great nation. I'll bless you, I'll make your name great and you'll be a blessing and I'll bless those who bless you and I'll curse anyone who treats you with contempt and all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went as the Lord had told him. That's Genesis 12, 1. So God called Abram, who becomes Abraham, to leave his comfort. A life that uh, he was established to leave his comfort and to go into somewhere he didn't know to, to lead the people of God. God promised Abraham that he would build them into a great nation. A nation that all the peoples of the earth would be blessed by a chosen nation that where uh, through their leader through his leadership and through the people's witness every nation around the world would come to know the one true god the nation of israel was to be one big witness for the one true god amongst a world that was full of false religion and false and, and paganism god was going to build a nation through abraham this was a very very big promise But with this big promise came a very, very big problem. Abraham's wife, Sarai, who had become Sarah, was barren. She was barren. She could not have children. And so he waited and he waited and he waited for the promise that God said he was going to do through him. Because we need to understand this church. God keeps his promises. But sometimes we get impatient, right? Right? I mean, have you ever had to wait for something that you were so certain was gonna come? Uh, have you ever had to wait for something, a promise for the Lord, and you felt like it was never gonna happen? Uh, let's get honest here, church. Have you ever heard me say something from Scripture? Have you ever read something in Scripture, and, and you see this promise of God, and you're like, that might be for somebody else, but I don't know if that's for me. I don't know, shh, if I believe that. That's what your heart might be saying because you read this promise and there's a gap between what God's promise says and what you're experiencing in life. But I wanna say it again. God keeps his promises, period. You may be waiting, but waiting is not a problem with God. Rather, it's a challenge for us. And in that waiting, will we trust him? Will we trust him? Because taking God's plan into your own hands will lead to very, very bad places. And God kept his promise. It took him 25 years to give Sarah and Abraham Isaac. And oh yes, they made a big mistake in the 25 years. I don't have time to get into that, but they took things in their own hands and it's enough for an R-rated movie, all right? They gave birth to Isaac, who then gave birth to Jacob. Who would take on the name personally as Israel? He would have twelve sons who would become the twelve tribes of Israel. You fast forward uh, through Joseph, who would populate Egypt. Uh, Fast forward through Moses, who would lead the people out of Egypt. Fast forward, Israel's tribes would later enter into the promised land. God was supposed to be the king of Israel, a theocracy. They didn't have a human king sitting on a throne. God was the king, but as they were entering, as they as they were looking to enter the promised land. They said to their spiritual leader at the time, Samuel, we want a king, a real king, a human king. And Samuel's like, seriously? You know like when you're like discipling somebody or maybe it's your kids or maybe it's a friend and you think you're going so far in your discipleship and all of a sudden they just make a claim or they make a request and you're like, wait a minute. What, What are you talking about? That was this moment. We want an earthly king. Samuel's like, oh, you gotta be kidding. He goes to the Lord, he's so mad. We, we pick up in 1 Samuel, let me read it to you. 1 Samuel 8, 7. He said, listen to the people. This is God speaking to Samuel. Listen to the people and everything they say to you. They have rejected you. They have rejected me as their king. They are doing the same thing to you that they have done to me since the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day, abandoning me and worshiping other gods. So they installed Saul Saul was the first king of Israel. He rejected God, God rejected him. Then came David, he was the second, second king. He had a heart to build a temple for the Lord in Jerusalem, for a place to worship the Lord and the world to come to hear about the one true God. It wasn't the temple wasn't built under uh, David's time. He had the vision for it. Solomon executed that vision by building uh, the temple. But Solomon also fell into great sin. He had over 1,000 wives and concubines, slept with them. It was not a great sin. And he was setting up dysfunction for generations to come in the nation of Israel. You know when someone says, you know, leave me alone. I'll do whatever I want to do. I'll do whatever I want in the comfort of my own home. You know, if it doesn't hurt you, then what's, what's your point? The thing is, when people fall into vice, whether it's drugs, alcohol, uh, whether, it's, whether it's unfaithfulness, uh, you name it, I want you to know it not only affects you, it affects the people that are in your orbit of influence, your, your family, but it also affects generations to come. It's why when there's an addiction, it's why when there's, when there's mistakes that are made over and over and over again, whether it's financial, whatever, people in your orbit learn these habits. Your kids are learning these habits. Your grandkids will learn these habits. And unless there is an a spiritual intervention, it will go on for generations. Solomon's son Rehoboam was anointed to be the next king, but the 10 northern tribes rejected Rehoboam The northern tribes instead installed their own king. We see this often uh, in the history of Israel. People rebelling and self-anointing themselves and having followers. The northern tribes installed their own king, Jeroboam, and it resulted in a divided kingdom. Now, there had been rebellions in Israel's past, but this was the first time there was literally a division on the map. You had the northern kingdom, which they called Israel. It was 10 of the 12 tribes. Uh, Then you had the southern kingdom, which Jerusalem was in. That was called Judea. There was was two tribes. There was a division. Immediately in the north, Jeroboam would set up alternative uh, religion, false gods taking on the customs uh, of the pagan nations. And every king thereafter, Jeroboam, was evil. The Bible says did evil, was exceedingly evil, doing wicked things in the sight of the Lord. The Lord would send prophets to confront them. We see Hosea, Elijah, Elisha, to name a few. They tried to warn the people, but the people were stiff-necked because they wanted to do whatever they wanted to do. The northern kingdom of Israel thumbed their nose at God for over 250 years. I want you to think about that. That is longer than the United States has been a nation. Sometimes we're like, whoa, God, these last four years have been terrible. Well, listen, there's, I bet there's some people in the Northern Kingdom are like, God, it's been almost 250 years. It's terrible. When you think, think of it this way God has a long fuse. The Bible says he's slow to anger. But as the fuse is lit, eventually the fuse gets to the firecracker. And as the old saying goes, boom goes the dynamite, right? What happens is this. Never assume how long the fuse is. Just know that disobedience breaks God's heart. And when we get off mission, eventually he says, time's up. We see this with every empire. We see this with individuals. Eventually, he says, Time's up. Judgment is here. And I know we like to proclaim, All right, America's going to be in judgment in the next 12 months or whatever. We can't say that, but we do know that if we are thumbing our nose at God, eventually he says, Time's up. And for Israel, Time was up on 722 BC. God raised up the Assyrian Empire from the north and invaded the northern kingdom. They took captive the people of Israel. They scattered them through the Assyrian Empire and they became slaves. The southern kingdom, meanwhile, uh, they had a mixed track record. They had some good kings, some really godly kings, and some really wicked kings. But eventually, idolatry would destroy uh, the southern kingdom. God would send prophets to them as well. They would ignore them, often kill them. And during this time, a new empire arose, the Babylonians. They took over the Assyrians. They were bigger, they were badder, they were meaner. And they were knocking on the doorstep of Judea. The Lord used an even bigger empire to attack Judea. And over a 20-year period, starting in 606 B.C., the entire nation of Israel uh, fell to Babylon. And this was complete by 586 when the entire nation uh, had fallen to the Babylonians. Listen to this. This is from 2 Chronicles, if you're taking notes. 2 Chronicles 36, 17. This gives a very vivid description of the fall of the southern kingdom. 2 Chronicles 36, 17. And by the way, what I'm reading to you is very important for what we're gonna read into Nehemiah. Second Chronicles 36, 17. So he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans. The Chaldeans is also Babylon. The king of Chaldeans who killed their fit young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary. They were they were killing right in the sanctuary. Uh, the Babylonians were killing uh, young men, but also he had no pity on young men or young women or elderly or aged. He handed them all over to him. And the Chaldeans burned God's temple. They tore down Jerusalem's wall. They burned all its palaces and destroyed all its valuable articles. And he deported those who escaped from the sword to Babylon and they became servants, that means slaves, to him and his sons until the rise of the Persian kingdom. This fulfilled the word of the Lord through Jeremiah and the land enjoyed its Sabbath rest all the days of the desolation until the 70 years were fulfilled. Judah was decimated. And those who survived were enslaved in Babylon. They were exiled And the temple and the homeland were left in ruins. During this time, an even greater empire took over the Babylonians. It's called the Persian Empire. And so as we get into Nehemiah, you're going to notice that the Persian Empire is the uh, the flavor of the day. All right? The Persian Empire takes place in modern-day Iran. And so as the Persians came to power, uh, the king of Persia, Cyrus... He wanted to make all his areas beautiful. And he knew that Jerusalem was lying in ruin. So he said, I have an, I have an idea. Let's send uh, the Jewish people back to Jerusalem and they can rebuild it. We see this in 2 Chronicles 36, 22. In the first year of the King Cyrus of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken through Jeremiah, the Lord roused the spirit of the King Cyrus of Persia to issue a proclamation throughout his entire kingdom and also to put into writing... This is what King Cyrus of Persia says. The Lord God of heavens has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has appointed me to build him a temple at Jerusalem and Judea and any of his people among you may go up and may the Lord his God be with him. This, God is speaking through an unbeliever here. Don't think for a second God is out of control uh, when we see the things in the world God is in control. And if he's allowing things for a certain, we don't know why he's allowing things. We can pray to him that God would bring justice, that God, that God would, would bring order, that, that there'd be a great revival. Yes, we should pray for all these things. But don't think for a second someone who is ultimately disobedient is more powerful than God. No. God moved through Cyrus. And a glimmer of hope for the people of God abounded. God was able to use this godless king to allow God's people to fulfill God's promises that was prophesied by Jeremiah if God said that he was going to use the nation of Israel, do you think any empire or do you think even the people's disobedience can stop God? Yes or no? Can we stop God? Do we want to stand in front of God's steam engine, right? We're going to get ran over. Nothing can stop God. But don't take God's promises for granted, though. You say, nothing's going to stop God. Nothing's going to stop the promises of God. We're living under the promises of God, and I can do whatever I want. ain't wrong. Notice, 70 years went by of exile. Generations died apart from the promise. God's promises will still occur. The question is, will you be a recipient of that promise? Don't ever assume the promises of God if you want to live in a life of disobedience. God keeps his promises, but you can forgo and experience them because of disobedience. But we see that Cyrus gave a decree. People of God can start coming back to Jerusalem. The book of Ezra, uh, which is the book that precedes Nehemiah, speaks to the first two periods of exiles returning to Jerusalem to fulfill Cyrus's decree. And Nehemiah is the continuation of the account in Ezra of the third period of exiles returning, uh, and it's led by Nehemiah himself. But here's the caveat. By the time Nehemiah is on the scene, Persia has a new king, Artaxerxes. And what we know from the book of Ezra, he stopped all the building activity in Jerusalem. It looked bleak once again. So back to Nehemiah 1. Let's read this again. Hey, you made it through some history. Is that cool? All right, yeah. Nehemiah 1, verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hechaliah, during the month of Shizeliv, in the 20th year. I would like to say that for that month, right? When I was in the fortress of the city of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, arrived with men from Judah And I questioned them about Jerusalem and the Jewish remnants that had survived the exile. And they said to me, the remnant in the province who survived the exile are in great trouble and disgrace. Jerusalem's wall has been broken down. We read that in 2 Chronicles, right? And its gates have been burned. Hananiah gave Nehemiah a full picture of what the homeland looked like. Nehemiah could be like, hey, brother, tell me how it is in Jerusalem. Well, it's great, brother. Great is the Lord, right? Yeah, so it's just, you know, it's a little rough a little bit, but we're doing fine. How many of us come to church like that, right? How are you doing? Oh, I'm doing great. It's great to be in the house of the Lord. It is great to be in the house of the Lord. But you know what I mean? When we just get over the top, kind of syrupy with our Christian words, you know, like this, and we don't let the stuff that God really wants to be put on the altar. Man, I love that new song we sang today, Surrender, right? And we're gonna see a lot of surrender here. But his brother and an eye, he's like, it's not good. He's not good. Those who survived the exile are, are in great trouble and disgrace. Their hometown ravaged. The walls of the city, uh, the first line of defense, were useless. The people that lived, they, lived with, they had to sleep with one eye open, knowing they could be attacked at any moment. And, and what we see here is there's a word. Notice in verse three, there's a word that says trouble. They were in trouble. This doesn't just indicate the condition of the city. This indicates the condition of their heart. They're feeling shame, absolute shame. They're supposed to be God's people, and they're living in an absolute slum, defenseless. Any poverty mindset sets in. They're in survival mode. As a follower of Christ, you may have experienced a season or two, maybe you're in it right now, where you have a poverty mindset. You're in survival mode, for whatever reason that is. You know what happens when you're in a poverty mindset, a spiritual poverty mindset, uh, when when shame begins to rule your heart, when fear begins to rule your heart? You aren't giving. Your, 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 Your arms aren't wide saying, God, how could I be used by you? You're like this. You're protecting yourself. You're like, God, it's not about what can you do, but God, I don't know if you can do it. It's not a position of faith. A poverty mindset shrinks your view of what God can do. And as a result, you pray less, because what's the point in a poverty mindset? So you might think, and when you're in a poverty mindset, you need to pray. You try to find then ultimately your joy in other places, but God, and I want you to know a poverty mindset leads down a very, very bleak, dark road. Are you living this morning with a poverty mindset? Are you? I I want you to honestly answer that question. Do you think God can use you? Do you think that God can make a difference in and through you? How how? Let's do an assessment this way. How are you using your time? How do you view time? If you're like, God, I don't have any time for you. I can't do that. It's because maybe, listen, I'm not talking about planners. I know we have planners in here. Some of you are free spirits. you are like, what's going on today? I don't know. We'll see what happens. Other you are like, I have hour by hour. This is what my day is looking like. Not talking about that. Poverty mindset is you never have enough time because you're so worried about, what if I do this, I can't do that, and if I do that, then I can't do that. God, I, I, no, I can't, I can't spend time with you. I can't spend time with God's people. I can't assemble on Sunday because I gotta mow my lawn, and then I can't go to Citigroup because I gotta eat dinner, and you think of all these different things that everybody else has to do as well, and you say no. Your talents. God wants to move in and through you, But if you have a contract with God that's 35 pages long of exceptions, I want you to know that is not living in the abundance of what God can do through you. It should not be God, I'll only serve you in these different ways. It's a God, uh, where? What? Even if you're not necessarily talented in that way, right? Time, talent. What about your treasure? Ooh, your possessions, right? If you have a poverty mindset, what if something happens? But when you understand, I'm not talking about living reckless or not having a budget. We should all have a budget. We should all live within our means. We should all live our paycheck. Okay, you get what I'm saying? I'm talking about when it rules you in the fear of I could lose it. You never are doing this. You want to know if you're struggling with uh, your treasures? Watch people's reaction at Christmas when you give them presents. (laughs) Right? What's this? Oh man, that was on sale at the dollar store? Anyway, no, I'm just kidding. All right, so. Poverty mindset can stricken God's people, can stricken us. And when it strickens God's people, it puts a lid on what God can do in and through that church because we aren't willing. God extraordinary qualifies ordinary people. Let's live knowing that God can abundantly do what he wants to do through us. This isn't prosperity gospel, we're naming or claiming it. No, rather, it is acknowledging uh, the attributes of God, that he's all powerful, he's all knowing, he's all loving, he's close to you, he's a distant God, and he wants to move in and through you, through his people, his church, to change the status quo. Amen? So, God is calling Nehemiah through a broken heart to do extraordinary things. and the church, he wants to do the same. If you want to be used by God, I want to look at three things in this morning. Three things this morning. If you want to be used by God in extraordinary ways that we need to encompass, and this is going to tee up next week in the weeks to follow. If you want to be used by God in extraordinary ways, you don't have to be extraordinary, Right? We we often compare ourselves to other people. I'm not that person. I can't pray that way, or I can't do that, right? It's not about comparing yourself to another human being. It's trusting God, the Lord God Almighty. God, blow me away what you're gonna do. So, you don't have to be extraordinary, but rather you need to be available to our extraordinary God. So, number one. Want to be used? God desires you to have the right heart. God desires for you to have the right heart. Nehemiah was given a terrible report. The people are dire. They have no hope. They talk about the walls being burnt down. What do you think Nehemiah's response is? Oh, no. Oh, no. There's no walls. There's no doors. The people of God are ruined. You're right. You're ruined. Go back and tell them how ruined they are tell them like how worried I am right how many of you when you hear news you just melt and you're like whoa how are we going to get out of this was that Nehemiah's response now Nehemiah 1:4 when i heard these words i sat down and i wept and i mourned for a number of days fasting and praying before the god of the heavens oh he cried but he didn't cry without hope. He went to the one who could change things. You see, we live in a world where we see crying and weeping as signs of weakness, right? I mean, I, I'll be the first to admit, if I cry, I'm embarrassed, right? How many of you are embarrassed like you, you saw me cry? Anybody, anybody honest in here, right? Raise your hand, like, I don't want people seeing me cry, right? But it's not that crying is the problem, but rather, do we cry over the right things? You see, crying, we see this. Jeremiah cried. He was called the weeping prophet, right? Uh, with Jesus, he cried. Jesus wept, shortest verse in the scripture. Well, you see uh, Paul cried. I'm typically not a crier. I've cried more in, in this last year than I've probably cried my entire life or when, when, when I was a kid, right? As many of you know, my mom passed. Some people cry at commercials. I don't get that. But when something, you can, you can cry, that's fine, all right? So, But but when something significant happens, those are the moments you don't have to think about, am I going to cry over this? You know, like when you're kind of welling up, like, am I going to cry, am I going to cry? I'm not talking about that. When your heart is so broken, you don't even have time to think before you're weeping. When I entered in that, that funeral home for the first time, I didn't even have to think about it. And this is, I think this might be the first time in my life has even happened where the tear actually was so welled up, it skipped the cheek and went right to the floor, right? When Nehemiah heard the news, he didn't go try to fix it right away. He sat down and he wept. He let out an ugly cry before the Lord but not a cry that was without hope because God broke Nehemiah's heart not to move him to despair, but to move him to the Lord. Some of us, we have a cry that needs let out. We have something so deep that has been pushed into our hearts that we need to let it out and give it to the Lord. God extraordinarily qualifies ordinary people. He wants to break our hearts first. He wants us to have the right heart. God desires you to have the right heart. Secondly, God desires you to be quick to pray. Quick to pray. Nehemiah 1 uh, verse 4. So when I heard these words, I sat down and I wept. I mourned for a number of days, fasting and praying before the God of the heavens. God wants our hearts broken for what moves his heart. He wants our hearts aligned to what matters to him most. And church, he wants us to know him. He wants our character uh, to be aligned with him. He wants us to tell the world about him. And for Nehemiah, he was moved to prayer. It says here for a number of days, some theologians believe that he sat and he prayed and he fasted for four months. Four months before he went to the king. He Fasted with prayer. Fasting, we're going to talk more about that next week. Uh, he, it, fasting is, is tied with prayer. It's typically the removal of something in your life. Typically what we see in scripture is food. So whenever you had hunger pains, you're reminded that you're not ultimately dependent upon the bread of of this world but the bread of life that is the Lord God Almighty and so as you have hunger pains through the day you rely on the Lord this allows you to be more attentive to prayer this allows you to be more attentive to the voice of God and gives you clarity uh, as you pray if you've never uh, fasted before I want you to know uh, we've done it before we're going to go into we'll, we'll talk more about it next week but it is something I highly recommend you do uh, with whatever your dietary uh, we'll talk more about that next week um, allows you Nehemiah fasted and he prayed. And notice three things when he's praying. Three things occur. Number one is he recounts the promises of God. The first thing he does when he goes to prayer isn't, oh God, the gates are busted. The people are in shame. Your glory is on the line, God. Where are you? That's not what he's saying. He immediately recounts, God, these are the promises I know. He recounts, the promises, Nehemiah 1.5, Nehemiah 1.5. I said, Lord, the God of the heavens, the great and awe-inspiring God who keeps his gracious covenant with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your eyes be open and your ears be attentive to hear your servant's prayer that I may pray that I now pray to you day and night for your servants, the Israelites. I love this. The first thing he says is, God, Covenant-making God, the God of the awe-inspiring promises. You're gracious, what so that means we don't deserve it, but yet you give us these promises. It, it reminds me of Romans 8:28, where Paul says that God works all things for the good. For those who love God and are called according to his purpose. God has brought when you place your faith and trust in Jesus, God brings you into a covenant, unbreakable love full of promises, and that's what he remembers. When Jesus went to the cross, he said, it is finished. It is finished. There is no asterisk saying, well, here are the exceptions, right? He's like, no, you place your faith and trust in Christ alone, it is finished. Your sin debt, past, present, and future are no longer held against you. You are a son and daughter of the king, which means you're heir to the king, which means you are heir to the promises of God. And you have full access to this king to pray, to talk to. And look at this. This is what Nehemiah is saying to God. He's saying, please be attentive to hear your servant's prayer. Oh, we know that God is attentive, He's leaning in when you're talking. Attentive is not just listening passively, right? As a husband, I know when I've listened passively. <laughs> I remember one time I was in the car and I was, you know, I was just listening. You know, you, you, especially when you get on I-88 in Illinois, it puts you in a trance, okay? But that's no excuse for that, all right? So my wife starts telling me about something about during the day. And I'm like, uh-huh, yeah, yeah, you yeah. know? Husbands, you know you've done this, all right? know, <laughs> like, I'm not admitting it right now. I know you're not admitting it, but I'm outing you, all right? So anyway, so Allison was telling me about something going on in the day. I was distracted, but then my distraction broke. Men, you know what I'm talking about, right? When does your distraction break when you're listening passively? when your wife asks for a clarifying question. So, Andy, what do you think about that? And I'm like, huh? <laughs> and so you're trying to recount all that was said, and you make what's called a husband's educated guess, which are always terrible, okay? And I said, well, that sounds really good. I'm all about that. <laughs> Allison looked at me so confused. She said, Andy, you weren't listening. Uh Uh-huh, yes, I was. I just said Graham hit Elias, and what should we do about it, right? You just endorsed our kids fighting. I'm like, I did? (laughs) Oh, look at the scenery out here, right? (laughs) We should always be attentive, yes. But I tell that story in my failure to let you know that we have a heavenly father who is always attentive. He's always listening to you. You have access to him and he's listening. Listen, he is the God of all creation. He is seeing all of creation in one instantaneous now. And yet he's not distracted saying, hold up here. I'm watching what's happening in Ukraine and Russia right now. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. just go for it, right? That's not him. When you go to God, he's leaning in. And it's not that God saying, okay, I'll do whatever you want. He's not a genie, but he's leaning in because he cares for you. He's a personal God. And when we pray to him, it's not about us necessarily changing God's mind. No, rather, it's us being in the presence of God and understanding his will. Our God is attentive. He's a promise keeper. So we see Nehemiah first recounts his promises. That's so important when we go to prayer. Secondly, Nehemiah confessed sin. He confessed sin, Nehemiah 1.6. I confess the sins we have committed against you. Both I and my father's family have sinned. It is so important to confess sin. Yes, when, you're, when you place your faith and trust in Jesus, yes, your sins past, present, and future are all forgiven. But the thing is, newsflash, hate to break it to us all, but guess what? Christians still sin, okay, right? Anybody stop sinning in here? Don't raise your hand because I'll call you a liar, all right? So <laughs> we still need to be right. We still need to go to God and say, God, I messed up here. Because when we live in continual sin, like it doesn't matter, God, yeah, whatever, it hurts our intimacy with God. You know, when I'm, I'm just I'm gonna roll here. So uh, when it comes to when it comes to this, I you know, Allison's like you can tell as many of these stories as you want. Okay, I will. So um, one of my jobs at home is to take out the trash, and there's times I forget to take out the trash. Okay. And so I remember coming home one day and the trash was just everywhere. And and garbage was on the floor because it had overflown. And I said, what's this garbage doing on the floor? Whoops! You know, like when something comes out of your mouth, like, no, put it back in, right? And I realized... I didn't take the trash out. And I was like, Andy, you didn't take the trash out. I'm like, oh, sorry. So I take the trash out really quick. Then I come back in and I'm like, I go for the hug. I'm like, hey, how was your day? She gives me the hug, right? But I realize even in that hug, I can feel the radiation that I didn't take the trash out, right? You see, when we do something wrong, it affects even slightly in that moment the quality of the relationship. I want you to know that your sin, if it's left unchecked and you don't care about it, it's going to affect your relationship with God. We live in an era where we think that we can be whatever we want to be and do whatever we want to do in the name of Jesus. I hate to say this, it's infecting even evangelical churches. People are doing things as they see right in their own eyes. They're borrowing methods, they're they're borrowing bitterness, they're borrowing different things from, from secular society, but if they do it in the name of Jesus, they must be right. I want you to know it's not. Sin Harms your relationship with Jesus. Oh, yes, he's still your heavenly father. Oh, yes, you're still the son and daughter of a king, but I want you to know you're not hearing his voice very well. Your sin grieves God, but let me tell you this right now your sin doesn't change God who he is, your sin affects you. You don't hear God as well. Your prayers are hindered because you're asking for the wrong things or the wrong motives. That's why we must examine ourselves. Where are we not being obedient? Confessing sin and bringing about that right spirit. It's like what David said in Psalm 51 after he fell into grotesque sin. He said, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. That needs to be our prayer. We must ask God to search our hearts. What do you need to confess this morning? Next thing that we see is, oh yes, Nehemiah finally then goes into request. Verse 10, they are your servants and your people. You redeem them by your great power and your strong hand. Please, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to that of your servants who delight and revere your name. Give your servant, here it is, success. He already knows what he's gonna do in his heart, right? But he's like, God, I need success if I'm gonna do this. And grant him compassion in the presence of this man. Nehemiah, we see right off the bat is a man of prayer. He's a man of prayer. Instead of talking about it, or like whoa, right? Instead of stewing on it, instead of like you know getting on texting about it, right? Instead of getting in circles and just saying, yo, man, can you believe this? Like you know. Like, you know, when you're in a conversation, you're just lamenting and you know it's not building things up. You know it's not given to God. It's probably bordering on gossip or is gossip. It's like you talk in a circle, like, yeah, oh, well, yeah, just can't believe it, right? Then maybe you return to the conversation two or three days later, oh, well, yeah, whatever, right? Well, have you prayed about it? Have you given it to God, right? Nehemiah was a man of prayer. And Nehemiah, knew the dire conditions in Jerusalem, and he knew that it was gonna take an act of God to move the heart of King Artaxerxes to allow people to start rebuilding this city again. It looked bleak, but he went to prayer. Man, when we go to prayer, church, we need to ask God and we need to expect that God can do whatever he wants to do, amen? We are nothing without prayer. We're powerless without prayer. And we need to respond together in prayer. I mean, we have a prayer team that's available in the back of this room, sometimes in the front of this room. You just got whatever, whatever we end up doing that day. We have prayer available. But you know what? We want to see you go to that prayer team. Even if you have something like, man, I just, just let God do what only he can do. Well, I can do this on my seat by myself. Verbalize it. Let someone pray into it. Let someone build you up and encourage you with it. We have a prayer room at 8 o'clock every Sunday. Did you know that? Fireside room upstairs. People praying their guts out for this service. And you know what I get to hear each and every Sunday? They come up to me almost every Sunday. Uh, they haven't told me I uh, Biffed it yet. But, uh, but uh, they, they come up to me and say, Andy, you gotta understand. this. like what you said. Like It's like you were in the room and you were hearing us praying. They didn't know what I was gonna speak on. I didn't know what they were praying. But the Lord moves when God's people pray. God leans in when we speak to him. He hears you. Some people don't pray because they think they don't know how. People parade their spirituality sometimes. They have these big, long prayers. Like they're some kind of enlightened super Christian. Nope, anybody can pray. If you have a, if you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, if you have placed your faith and trust in him alone, you can talk to God. Amen? When we go to God, because when you, are, when you place your faith and trust in Jesus, you're his people. Because he's redeemed you by his blood. God broke Nehemiah's heart to move to God first in prayer. Because God extraordinarily qualifies ordinary people. Last thing, and then we're going to pray. Remember who you are. Remember who you are. Nehemiah 1, 11. Eight words. I'm going to read you. You can almost miss it. Because in some of your Bibles, it's a separate line. Nehemiah 1.11, at the time, I was the king's cupbearer. At the time, I was the king's cupbearer. Nehemiah was a cupbearer to King Artaxerxes. That meant in his slavery, he moved up the ranks and he became a cupbearer, which is a butler. Oh, I resonate with that. A butler, which means he had access to the king. He even had access to, to say yes and no to people that came into the palace. Nehemiah wept, and he prayed, and he remembered who he was. He is a follower of the Lord God Almighty. He remembered he was a butler who had access to the king. And next week, he's going to make a move with the king as a cupbearer to the king, as a butler to the king that is going to risk it all. He has comfort in the palace, but he's going to make a request that could end his life. But he's willing to do it because you remember who he is. And we are going to, you're going to see God do incredible things in and through you when you remember who you are. Kenosha City Church is going to make a dent into this community and a dent into the international community when we remember who we are, when the gospel goes out. Nehemiah knew who he was, but he knew even greater whose he was a follower of the Lord. God Almighty, here's our bottom line. Here's our bottom line, and then we're going to pray. If We can put those up on the screen, the bottom lines. What you pray about reflects what you believe about God and what he can do. So what do you need to give to God today? How you pray, okay, we all have access to God, but what you pray about reflects what you believe about God. So what do you need to give to God today? If some of you have given up on something and praying about something, that means that God's no longer listening to you. No, he's attentive. Uh, If if it's only small things, uh, you don't think that God could heal that thing, move that mountain, uh, but provide you out of this horrible situation, I want you to know you've shrunk God in, in your poverty thinking. What do you need to give God? Second, what is the condition of your heart right now? Are you broken for those who don't know Christ? Are you broken for those who are hurting? All of a sudden, yeah, 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 I'm broken. I'm broken. What, what are you actively doing about it right now? Who, who are you? We, if, if you don't know any non-Christians, or you're not talking to any non-Christians, we need to find places in the community to engage non-Christians. Most of us work in secular jobs. Most of us have neighbors, right? Most of us, most of us have friends, right? We just taught on uh, the last couple weeks in our equip class. Those classes will come back. Uh, How to bring Jesus up. Relationally and relentlessly. It's not about the professional or about someone who's a great evangelist. It's about God's people being faithful. Bringing Jesus up because he is our all in all. Amen. Number three. What competes with your identity in Christ? What competes with your identity? Again, the test here. How are you using your time, your talent, your treasure at Kenosha City Church to make a difference? So, Father, we pray right now that even if we feel ordinary, we never forget how extraordinary you are. You're wonderful. You're merciful. You're graceful. We love you, Jesus. So, God, do what only you can do right now. Father, I pray for anybody in this room, if they don't know you as Savior, they can walk out of this room knowing that they have a relationship with you. So as we continue to pray, I want to talk to anybody in this room where if you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus or maybe you're, you've you've walked away from Jesus, you're, you've been far away from him, this is your time to draw near to him. If you want to have a faith and relationship in Jesus Christ, listen up. Jesus Christ made you. You're not a mistake. He created you. The problem is, You've sinned, you've done wrong. The Bible says you've been separated from your maker, Almighty God. Just as we sang today, no earthly religion, no philosophy, uh, can, no good work can bridge you to God, can bring you to God, only Jesus can do that. Why? Because when we're separated from Almighty God, God's requirement is perfection. Not a single one of us is perfect. But Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, came to this earth 2,000 years ago, perfect to die for you. He died on the cross. He saw your life. He saw your sins. And he went to the cross, and he took on the wrath of God for you. He paid the punishment of sins for you. He died, but three days later, he rose from the dead because he's perfect. He's sinless. Death couldn't keep him. He defeated death. And we defeat death when we place our faith and trust in Christ alone. And this is where you come in. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus, just right now say, Jesus, I I believe what you did on the cross. I trust what you did on the cross as payment for my sins. I believe you rose from the dead. I'm placing my faith and trust in you alone. I'm confessing with my mouth that you're Lord. I believe in my heart that you rose from the dead. I'm crying out to you right now. We just pray to him right now? So Lord Jesus, I pray for those that are placing their faith and trust in you right now. With no one looking around, if that's you, if today you're drawing near to Jesus, you're placing your faith and trust in him alone, will you just look up at me? I just want to see what God's awesome. I see you. Awesome. Anybody else? Awesome. For those of you that have responded to Jesus today, will you pray with me? This prayer doesn't save you. I'm just helping you talk to God. Lord Jesus, come into my life. Thank you for making me. I realize I've done wrong. I've sinned. I need forgiveness. Thank you for dying on the cross. Thank you for raising from the dead. I place my full faith and trust in you now. Help me follow you in all my life. And Lord, I pray for all this church. I pray that we would wait on your spirit now and, and, and search our hearts. God, give us the right heart. God, allow us to know what is diametrically opposed to you in our heart. God, remind us of whose we are. And God, I pray that you begin to do a mighty good work through us in this church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for listening to this week's episode.